Amen. Well, we are in 2 Peter chapter 1, and as uh, we go uh, through the Word, we're going to begin a new book today. So for those of you that are visiting us for the first time, uh, you are being blessed because you're able to get into this new book. And uh, when it comes to uh, 2 Peter, you know, we're going to just give you a quick introduction over it, and we're also going to talk about uh, just uh, the first few verses as there is much doctrine to learn when we get into these verses. Uh, when it comes to uh, 2 Peter, you know, when we talk about who, why, when, where, and so forth, uh, that's what we want to give you today. When we talk about who wrote it, according to the title, we see that it is the second epistle of Peter. And so we would think to ourselves, you know what, it is written by Peter. In verse 1 of uh, 2 Peter, he says, Simon Peter, bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. So when we read that, you know, when we look at this, we would think to ourselves, you know what, there shouldn't be any doubt as to who wrote the word, right? There shouldn't be any doubt as to the association with Peter. But when it comes to the, the word of God and the Holy Spirit that inspired these men to, work, to, to write the word of God, we know that it is always challenged. There is always challenge to discredit the word of God and who wrote the word. We know that this is given for a reason and the reason is to bring doubt and disbelief into our hearts so that we wouldn't give it what it deserves, which is knowing that this is truly the Word of God, the unadulterated, infallible, inerrant Word of God. And why was it that Peter's authorship was challenged? What was it that, that they were looking at or what was it that they saw that would challenge this as Peter's second epistle or second letter is what that means? When we look at 1 Peter, and we look at 2 Peter, we see that in 1 Peter, there was a certain style that he wrote. And in 2 Peter, it's a, it's a different style. He has a different style of writing. And we know about 1 Peter, we know that the word was actually dictated and spoken, and we know that one of the disciples, which was Silas, he's the one that penned it. He's the one that was receiving the words and writing it down for us. This was 1 Peter. But we know that when it came to 2 Peter, he does not credit Silas as writing the words that he spoke. See, this was only given to us in 1 Peter, and in 2 Peter, it wasn't given to us. And the only reason why I want to share about Silas is because, see, when we write, we all have a different style of writing, don't we? You know, today in our, you know, our modern technology and the way we communicate, I think many of us right in Facebook and in Twitter and in texting and in emails. But no matter how you write and you think about it, right, you all have a different style. You all use different abbreviations. You all use different words. And people can identify which are your writings and which are not your writings. And so when it came to the first writing of Peter, you know, when Silas wrote it down, he had his style of writing, and this is why we believe that, you know what, that there would be a different style when it came to 1 Peter and 2 Peter. But we know one thing about this is that the message never changed. When you look at the different writings by the different writers, when it comes to Mark, when it comes to John, when it comes to Luke, you know, when it comes to Matthew, when it comes to Paul, we all have different styles of writing. And so this was what was injected into the first letter. But in the second letter, Peter, it is believed that Peter wrote it himself. And the reason we believe this is because he didn't give credit to anybody 
writing this word. When it comes to this, we know that the authorship was questioned. And it was more than just a style of writing. I want you all to know that. See, because there were many letters that were written during this time, after the resurrection of Christ, after the ascension of Christ, there were other letters that were written, and these were actually false letters by people. And people were writing themselves as being Peter or being Paul. And so there were many false teachings that were going on. And who do you think was behind these false teachings? It was Satan himself, right? And why would he write, or why would he have people write false doctrine to lead people astray? He wanted to teach false doctrine so that people wouldn't listen to what? To the truth of God. And based on this, that's why there was concern when it came to First and Second Peter. With the different styles and knowing that there were other letters going around, they began to challenge this. And actually, when you look at this, when you look at, at what happened here, or what, or, or what he wrote in the first and second letter, not only were there style differences, but there were also many similarities. And these are the things that many people don't want to look at. Certain phrases that Peter used in his first letter were some of the similar phrases that he used in the second letter. Did you know that what ha some of the sermons that, he, that we have written in uh, the book of Acts, he uses some of those same words in Second Peter. So when we look at this, when we look at the letter, we see that, you know what, uh, I, I just want to give you this history, but we see the, 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 the challenge that Satan has brought upon it. But we know that it was canonized. And what that means is, is that it was acknowledged by the early church fathers that the words were truly inspired by God. When we go to the when, when was 2 Peter written? 2 Peter was written in A.D. 67 or 68. We don't know exactly when it was written, but we know that we estimate that it would be written around this time. And then you may think to yourself, well, how do you guys know it's written around this time? See, when we look at the Emperor Nero, Emperor Nero was the Roman ruler at the time, right? He ruled the Roman Empire. And the Emperor Nero died in the year 68 A.D. And if the Emperor Nero died in the year 68 A.D., Peter wrote this letter right before the Emperor died. See, what happened, it was Emperor Nero is the one that martyred, that killed, that instructed the death of Peter. And so we know, the, we know that, that uh, if, he, if Nero died before, uh, died in 68, so it would, we would only assume that, that Peter wrote the letter before that. And we know when it comes to the second epistle, we know that it, was, it truly is a second epistle. And the reason why I say it is a second epistle is because Peter references this letter, the second letter, as his second epistle, and this is in chapter 3, verse 1. And when we talk about where, where was Peter when he wrote this? Okay, we always want to know, you know what, where's, and, and where did this take place, and, and, and why did he write it? While Peter wrote this letter, we know that we truly believe that he wrote this letter when he was in Rome. Because in, as, as we know that if he died in Rome, 
And this was written right before he died. We know that he was in prison before he wrote this. See, in 1 Peter chapter 3, I mean chapter 5, verse 13, we know that Peter sends greetings from Babylon. And Babylon would have been a cold name for Rome. We know that as as, uh, as we think about this, as, as we read about this, we know for a fact that, that you know what, that, that he, pro- he wasn't in Rome. I mean, that he wasn't in Babylon, which would be today Iraq, right? And so when we think about this, we think to ourselves, you know what? If he died in prison when he was in Rome, then more than likely he would have been in Rome right before he wrote it. Peter in the second letter doesn't state that he's in Babylon, but we know that if he was in prison before his death, then he would have written it right before then. And we know, if you look at verse 14 there in, first, in Second Peter, he talks about his final death. He says there in, chapter, in verse 14, he says, Knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as the Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. So we see here, that he's talking about his death because he will soon be martyred. What does tradition tell us about the death of Peter? Peter was crucified. Actually, when we look at Peter and his wife, we also have tradition that tells us that Peter's wife was also crucified. But when it came to Peter, tradition tells us that he said, you know what? It is, I am not worthy to be crucified as the Lord. So he requested to be crucified upside down. And that is what tradition tells us. And when we look at this letter too, it's not like 1 Peter that tells us who he addressed it to in the introduction. But we know one thing about 2 Peter is that he also wrote this. As it, is, as it tells us in, in chapter 3 verse 1, he says, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle. And what he's doing is he's writing a second letter to follow up with the first letter that he wrote. And he wrote these to the, to the, to the people, to the Christians that were in modern-day Turkey. And so we know that he mentions this in 1 Peter, that he wrote to the dispersed uh, churches, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in the churches. And as we figure out, or as we read the letter, and as we go through the letter, you're going to figure out why he wrote this letter. The first letter that Peter wrote, the first letter that he wrote, it was to encourage the Christians, the Christians that were suffering persecution because of their faith. And that's why he wrote 1 Peter. But when it comes to 2 Peter, why is it that he would write this letter? He wanted to address the false teaching that was infiltrating the church. There was much false teaching that was coming into the church. The church was under attack by Satan. And this is something that is no different today, as we have so much doctrine that goes on today, so much false doctrine that goes on today. We know as we read the letter that Peter never addresses individuals or he never uh, addresses a group. But we know that he exposes their lies, and we will go through that. This book is very much like the book, the epistle of Jude, which is the brother of James. And Jude also writes to those that are teaching false doctrine and what is to come of them. 
When it comes to false doctrine, I want you to know one thing. How can you and I know a false teacher? How can you and I know if there is somebody that is teaching lies? The only way to know that is if you know truth. Understand this. The only way to determine if somebody is teaching false doctrine is to know truth. And in this letter, I want you to know one thing. Peter mentions the word knowledge various times. Peter talks about knowledge. And when we look at the first few verses today, we're going to see how he mentions the word knowledge. Throughout the book, and it's a very short book, it's only three chapters, but this letter is very small. He mentions it 16 times because he wants us to know how important knowledge is. And this is why here at Calvary Chapel we give you expositional teaching. And the reason we give you expositional teaching is because we want you to have the full counsel of God. We want nothing of the truth to ever escape when it comes to our teaching. We teach you verse by verse. We teach you chapter by chapter. We teach you book by book. And when we look at this, right, or when we think about this, if God has revealed His knowledge and His truth through His Word, then this should motivate all of us to be reading it. You and I should have a hunger and a thirst to read the truth of God. How many of you here want to know truth? Give me a show of hands. I think that's why we're here, right? We want to know truth. None of us want to live a lie. None of us want to live according to fables and lies. I mean, I don't think anyone in our hearts wants that, right? Even the non-believer, he doesn't want to live in lies. I mean, he doesn't want to follow lies. He wants to follow truth. And many times he is deceived in the truth that he believes. And so when we go through this book, we're going to be revealed truth. And so with that, let's read his word in verse 1. It says, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Simon Peter, he addresses himself in this letter as Simon Peter. When you look at 1 Peter, do you know how he addresses himself? He addresses himself just as Peter. And so because of this, I want to talk about this, right? I mean, you know what? There's these things that are in the Bible that, you know what, that, that the Lord and the Spirit of God just leads us to talk about. And when I looked at that, I thought to myself, you know what? You look at the first letter, he calls himself Peter, and this one, Simon Peter. Let's talk about this. You know, let's, let's, let's evaluate this, right? When you look at the word, at his name, right? His birth name was what? His birth name was Simon. Just like all of you. All of you have a birth name, right? Every single one of us has a birth name. Sometimes we grow up and that birth name we don't use. Or, or maybe our parents give us two names, right? And sometimes we get three names. But most of the time, at the most, it's or the average is one or two names. And we are all known by this one name, right? Because it is our birth name. Sometimes we may be known by our second name, but... But whatever it is, we know that we have a name that was associated, that was given to us at birth. And our names always correlate with our physical birth. When it came to Simon Peter, I want you to know something about Simon is that Simon, it correlates with his physical birth. 
And it talks about his old nature. But when we look at the word, or when we think about this, right? When we look at the names that the Lord gave to his people, many times he changed their birth names because he wanted to reveal a change in their lives. And it was all associated more with a spiritual awakening or a spiritual change. And I want to give you examples. It's just like Abram was changed to Abraham. Or Sarai was changed to Sarah. Or you look at uh, Jacob was changed to Israel. Or you look here at Simon, his name changed to Peter. When we look at the name Peter, this was the name that Jesus gave him. And he changed it to Peter. And what does Peter mean? When we think about Peter, right, the name change that the Lord gave him, it means stone. And so when Jesus Christ referred to his new nature in Christ, he would call him Peter. But when we think about Simon Peter, when Jesus would refer to Simon, to Peter as Simon Peter, he was referring to his two natures. See, Simon was the old nature and Peter was a new nature in Christ. You know, when Peter discusses our new nature in Christ, through this letter, he also discusses or talks about our old nature in Christ. And so, as Peter introduces himself, I think it's very relevant to what we're going to be talking about and what he refers to in his letter. We also know that Peter had another name. And the other name that he had was Cephas. And all Cephas was was the Aramaic equivalent to Peter. It wasn't really a different name. It was just, you know, the way you pronounce it in Aramaic. So now let's go into what he titles himself. He calls himself a bondservant. You know, when we look at this word, I think many of us have heard the word, or maybe this is new to many of us. But when we think to ourselves, you know what? What is a bondservant? What exactly is a bondservant? We know that there's a word bond, and then there's a word servant. So when you put these together, what does it mean? You know, when we look at what bond servants did, do you know what they were? They were slaves. Slaves that decided to be a slave to their owner by choice. It wasn't that they were going to do it for wages or they were going to do it because they were forced to do it. They did it freely and willingly. Did you know how the old slaves that became bond servants, what they would do? They would actually put their ear against a wall and they would nail something through them to remind others that, you know what, I am a bondservant to somebody else. And when we think about Peter, who was he a bondservant of? Freely, willingly, by choice, not forced to do it, of Jesus Christ. That is the same for us. You know, when we talk about being a bondservant, it should minister to us. Can we call ourselves bondservants, slaves of the Most High, slaves of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, doing as the Master says, or are we still doing what we want to do? See, do we still want to do what me wants to do? See, when we still want to do what we want to do, we're not fully surrendered. We're not truly calling Jesus our Lord and our Master. See, when you're still controlling your life, you're still in control, and you're not allowing the Lord to be your master. 
It's so important that we understand this, that if we call Jesus Lord, then we should act as if he is our Lord. You know, it's funny when I look at this, when I look at just the mindset of Peter. See, because we can learn so much from the scriptures. But when you look at the mindset of this man, what has happened to this man once he received the Spirit of God? After he saw the ascension of the Lord, of his master. You know what, how Peter writes this? He classifies himself first as a bondservant and secondly as an apostle. You know, that should minister to us, right? Because we know that Peter was a great apostle, wasn't he? We know that Peter was what? He was the leader of the 12. That's why he was always mentioned first. Whenever they would talk about the names of the apostles. To signify that he was really the leader of them. And what is it that apostle means? When we look at the word apostle, it means that one sent away. Commissioned by God. That's what the word apostle means. But when we look at the heart of Peter here, Peter could have easily said, you know what? I am the apostle and the bondservant of Jesus Christ. He doesn't decide to say, I am the apostle first. He classifies himself first as a bondservant, which should minister to us. To think of the humility of Peter. To understand that, you know what, there's nothing important in Peter. The only one that's important in the life of Peter is Jesus Christ. And this is what God wants us to be like. To understand that the only one that matters is Him. Everything that you have, your breath. Your knowledge, your skills, your talents, your gifts, your strength. It all comes from the Lord. There's nothing to take credit in. We should not be a people of pride because there's nothing in us to be prideful of. But when we look at the humility of Peter, the reminder of what we should be. And this should also minister to all of us. You know, for those of you that have titles, you know, what does that say to us? Titles aren't really important, are they? What's most important is our relationship with the Lord. One thing about starting new letters, I really enjoy starting a new letter because most of the new letters here in the New Testament, they're always filled with doctrine. And we're able to go into this because these letters, when they start off, they fill you with such spiritual riches and treasures that if we dissect them, we're going to see exactly what they are. You know, and the first thing that I want to talk about when he says there, to those who have obtained like precious faith. What does this mean? Like precious faith. You know, when we think of the word precious, that's usually a girly word, isn't it? Not many men are saying, you know what? Oh, look at how precious this is. That isn't usually a name that a guy uses. That's not a manly word. We may call our daughter precious, or we may call a dog precious, but that's about it. That's as far as it goes. We don't use this really for other things. And you figure, Peter, you know what, this big man, right? He was supposed to be big and strong. Using this word precious. You may think to yourself, well, you know what, what kind of word is that? I mean, would he use that? Why would Peter use the word precious? Well, you may be surprised because... Precious in the Greek is not the way we look at it today. 
See, the word actually was used to describe foreigners who were granted the same privileges of citizenship to those that were naturally born. What I'm trying to say here is that just like those that receive legal status in this country, they have the same privilege as those that are naturally born citizens of the United States of America. They're legalized, and so they get the same benefit. And so this is what Peter is reminding us of. But Peter says there, he says, you know what? That this precious faith was given to us by the righteousness of Christ. When we think about this, you and I have all been given, for those of you that are surrendered to the Lord, this is who I'm speaking to here. For those that have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, did you know that you were given that faith by God himself? This is what he's talking about. If you read it, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. You have been given this faith by God, by the Lord, I should say. And it's important for us to understand this. He gives us the faith to believe. It's not in ourselves. But God has granted this because he is gracious. And in this faith, as I was talking about earlier, as I mentioned to you what the word precious truly meant, it means that this faith that we have, it comes with equal benefits and privileges. See, no one in God's kingdom is greater than another. And this is why Peter writes her, to those who have obtained precious faith like us. He's referring to himself. He's not saying, you know what? I'm greater than you. I'm better than you. I'm the apostle. And because of that, I'm somebody that gets special privileges. When it comes to the saints of Christ, you know what? We have certain religions that elevate certain people, don't they? And they begin to praise these people. And they begin to pray with these people, to these people. And we see here that Peter is saying, you know what? They're no different. We're all the same. See, none of us have a greater standing in the Lord. The position of Peter is equal in value to our position in the Lord. We need to understand that none of us have greater privileges. See, when it comes to me, just because I'm a pastor doesn't mean that the Lord loves me more. It doesn't mean that, you know what, I have a greater standing before the Lord than you. In reality, when, it, when you talk about my standard, I am held up to a higher standard. But I'm not greater than you. We're all equal before the Lord. See, and when we look at this, if we see what really is the result of all of this, is when we think about it, Peter is not more loved by the Lord than you. Every single one of us are loved the same by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, when it came to Abraham and Moses and David and the apostles and with Paul and with the disciples and every man of faith, did you know that God loved them the same way he loves us? Did you know that he loved them enough the way he loved us to die for our sins? See, there is no one that is loved more. We all have the equal and same love of our Lord. 
Understand one thing, that there will never be favorites in the kingdom of God. Because he loves us all the same. You know, that should allow us to feel good, doesn't it? To know that, you know what, that God doesn't have favorites. You know, like the way we exercise favoritism sometimes. This isn't the way the Lord does things. The Lord does things very differently. See, our spiritual life, it begins with faith. Understand this. Everything begins with faith. We become new creations in Christ. We have a new spiritual birth in Christ because of our faith. This is what 2 Corinthians 5.17 is. You know what? To all of us that are in Christ Jesus, we are all new creations. All things become brand new. All things of the past are old and behind us. When it comes to this spiritual life that begins by faith, it is a spiritual rebirth. See, when it comes to our new creations, our spiritual birth, it's important for us to understand that none of us can erase our sins, okay? You and I cannot erase our sins. You and I cannot erase or forgive our sins of the past, present, and future. The only one that can do this is God. And in order to have a right standing with God, we need to come to God and ask Him for forgiveness. And once we come to God and ask Him for forgiveness, then the righteousness of Christ comes upon us. It is on our account. See, somebody had to pay the penalty for our sins. And what's so amazing about this is that when He pays our penalty and when we place our faith in the Lord, in Jesus Christ, the same righteousness that Christ had, because he never committed sin, actually comes on our account too. And you may be wondering, what, how does that work? Let me share this with you. If I was a millionaire, which I'm not, but if I was a millionaire and I decided to put a million dollars in your account, what, the, what does that make you? A millionaire, right? And because that makes you a millionaire, you are one. See, when it comes to the Lord, the Lord was righteous. The Lord was holy. The Lord was pure. There was no sin in Him. And when we place our faith in Him, you know what He gives us? That same righteousness. See, so when God looks at us, He doesn't look at our sin. He looks at the righteousness of His Son. That's what's been given on our account. That's why it's so important by faith that we, that, that we believe in Him. See, your righteousness can never come by the things that you do. Your righteousness can never come by the good deeds, by being someone special. None of that happens by that. It happens because of the faith in Jesus Christ. That is the only way that you can have this righteousness. And it is a free gift for all. This gift is not reserved for a few. It is reserved for all. God gives the gift to all. But not everyone receives that gift, right? People still want to live in their sin or for self or for the world or in lies. None of us can buy our salvation. 
Even if I gave you a million dollars, even Bill Gates or Donald Trump or any of these guys, none of them can buy their salvation with their money. That's the simplicity of the gospel. You know what the simplicity of the gospel is? To place your faith in Jesus Christ. And with that, you will be in the presence of God through eternity. You will live forever. This is why God has placed eternity in our hearts. We all have a longing to live forever. Who here wants to live forever? I think we all want to live forever, right? It's been placed in our hearts. This is something that God has given us. But the only way to receive this eternal state of being is through faith in Jesus Christ. I want to tell you that it is a gift. And this is why in Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 9, it says, For by grace you have been saved, through faith and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. The next point that I want to talk about here is the fact that Peter called Jesus God and Savior. If you look at the verse there, he says, To those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is labeling Jesus Christ as God and Savior. See, it's important for us to understand this. Let's take first Jesus being God. We must understand that as Christians here that Jesus is God. See, many people want to say that, you know what, Jesus is a good man, or Jesus is a wonderful prophet. Jesus it was more than that. Jesus is God. See, and this is what Peter is revealing here. You will have people knocking on your doors, and I think many of you have had these people knocking on your doors, and they don't want to acknowledge that Jesus is God. You can give them this scripture. Or you can also give them John 1, 1, right? In the beginning was a word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Signifying Jesus as the word, he is God. John 10, 30, Jesus himself said that I and the Father are one. In other words, Jesus is God. And we know in Philippians 2, 6, it says that Jesus did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. If you're equal with God, then you are God. Understand this, that Jesus is God. When it comes to the truth of doctrine, it's important for us to understand that. To understand what I just taught you right now. Because without believing in this truth, there is no salvation. We must acknowledge Jesus as being God. When it talks about Jesus as Savior... Understand one thing about Jesus is Jesus came to save the people from their sins. That was his purpose. What does the word Jesus mean? For those of you that don't know, it means Savior. Do you know why the angel Gabriel told them to call Jesus Jesus? Both Joseph and Mary? Because he said Jesus will save people from their sins. There's no one else that can do this. You can't do it by your good deeds. You can't do it by how much money you have. The only way to be saved from your sins is to surrender your heart to Jesus Christ, to come to faith, to the faith in Him. We know that Jesus Himself said that no one can come to the Father but through Him. 
He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God the Father but through Him. And how important this is for us to understand. See, the people out there are so deceived in this world. They say that, you know what, by the things that I do, by the good deeds that I have, the fact that I'm not that bad of a person, you know what, I'm still going to be able to make it to heaven. God is merciful. God understands my sins, right? Isn't God love? Don't we hear this all the time? Well, the truth of the gospel is contrary to what they believe. If this is the word of God and we believe it to be the word of God, the word of God tells us how to be saved. In Romans chapter 10, verse 9, it says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. And it finishes in verse 13, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But understand one thing, it is not just calling upon him, right? Any of us can say, Lord, you know what? I'm calling you. When it talks about believing, it means that as one believes in their heart, so they shall be. There must be a change, a transformation that goes on. Because before Christ, if we continue to live that same way after we confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and there is no transformation or no change, then there is no true repentance. There must be change in our lives. That is the evidence of our faith. The fact that you and I are transformed reveals the fact that we have surrendered our hearts to Jesus Christ. As we look at 2 Peter, he says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Verse 2, when we look at the word grace and peace, what is grace? Grace is God's unmerited favor, right? Towards you. What that means is that, you know what? There is nothing that you can do to receive God's favor. No matter how good you are, no matter how smart you are, no matter how talented you are. You know what? You can't earn this. Because if you earned it, then it wouldn't be grace. When we talk about grace, these are the blessings of God, the favor of God, the love of God that comes upon you, even though you don't deserve it. And this is because He is gracious. When we think about this, if we look at our lives do we truly deserve the goodness of God? When you woke up this morning, the things that you thought and the things that you said, what about yesterday? Or what about the day before? Or even now in this place, the evil thoughts that you had? Do we deserve the grace of God based on our thoughts, based on our feelings, based on our emotion, based on our words, based on our actions? None of us deserve this. But God is gracious and He gives it to us even though we don't deserve it. Praise the Lord that we don't get what we deserve, right? Otherwise, where would we be? We wouldn't be with God. We wouldn't be living with Him through eternity. Jesus Christ is the grace of God. And when we place our faith in Him, we receive this. Do you know what peace is? When we look at the word peace, peace is harmony between God and man. That's what peace is. 
And how can this peace come with God? We have to believe in the peacemaker, which is Jesus Christ. We have to place our faith in Him. And this is the only way that we can have harmony with God. Apart from, this, from, this, from our faith in Jesus Christ, there will never be peace with God. And one thing we know about peace is that when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, I know when I did, I had this peace that came upon me, that overwhelmed me, that was beyond explaining, that surpassed all understanding. This is what came upon me when I said yes to Jesus. And this is what happens to all of us. And this is what God wants with us. He wants to make peace with us, but the only way that we can make peace with God the Father is through His Son, believing in what He did for you, the fact that He died for your sins, the fact that He paid the price, and it was a horrific death. It was a horrific suffering. And He did it because He wanted to be reunited with you because you were separated from Him by sin, by the things that you did. And this is what we see. And we see here, Something interesting that Peter says. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Savior Jesus Christ. How is it that grace and peace can be multiplied? Let me share this with you. In school, I think most of us here went to school, right? Maybe some of us graduated from secondary school, high school, college. So maybe some of us here got master's. But we know one thing, that as we studied, we became sort of what? We became experts, right? Our knowledge multiplied in this area. And I know everyone here, you all look so smart. I know you all got A's. And you all became experts and A students in school. But how is it that you became an expert in these classes? It's because you read and you studied. Knowledge multiplied. And this is what the Lord is trying to tell us. This is what Peter's trying to tell us. That our grace and peace with God will multiply if you're reading his word. See, why wouldn't you want to grow in this area? If there is any other book that we should read, that we should read, it is the word of God. People, please do not waste your time reading books, novels, newspaper in your spare time when you could be reading the Word of God. The Word of God has treasures of wisdom and knowledge that we can all receive. As you all raise your hand, you all said, I want to receive truth. I want to know truth. Well, this is what the Lord is saying, then read my Word. If this is what you want, then read my word. Pray for a hunger for his word. Pray for a thirst for his word. Your hunger will be satisfied and your thirst will be quenched when you read his word. Verse 3 says, As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him is what it says. See, faith in God, faith in the Lord, it gives you one thing. And you know what it is being revealed to us? It is, given, it is giving us the power of life and godliness. 
See, none of us want to walk in sin, right? We know that sin is wrong. Even the sinner knows that it is wrong. That's why he does it in hiding. That's why he doesn't reveal it. But one thing that we know, if for those that want to walk in godliness, to have godly character, to wash, walk according to God's wishes, to do the right thing in holiness and purity, then know one thing, that if you are born again of the Spirit, you will have the power to walk this way. This is what is so amazing. Did you know that when you came to faith in Christ, for those of you that have surrendered yourselves to Him, you have all that you need for life and godliness. We have everything through His Word. See, before you came to know Christ, did you know that you were dead is what Ephesians 2.1 tells us? But He made you alive. And with this life, when we said yes to Christ... He fully equipped us to live a life that is pleasing to Him. No matter what your temptation you may have, no matter what sin comes against you, no matter what challenges and trials you have, did you know that you have the power within you to live, a li to live life and godliness? You know, it's funny because recently I, learned, I taught my son to drive. And what I did is, I first taught him on the streets, right? I said, you know what, let's first learn. Well, first, actually, we learned in Sam's parking lot, Sam's Club. You know, when it was dark and when it was emptier. So we were driving around in Sam's Club, and then I said, okay, now we could transfer you to the streets. And then he, finally, he kept telling me, Dad, Dad, when can I go on the freeways? I said, hold on. I said, let's keep practicing and practicing and practicing. And so then finally, just the other day, I said, you're ready. And he was so excited, right? He was excited to go on the freeway. And he did okay. Don't tell him I said that. But one thing that we know is that, see, he had a gradual learning. Okay? When it comes to Jesus Christ, when you say yes to him, there is no gradual learning. He gives it all to you. But you got to tap into it. You got to surrender to it. You got to yield to it. He doesn't say, you know what? You've been good here, so I'm going to give you more now. That's not the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel is that we have all power to live life and godliness. We don't have to say, you know what? Guess what? I can't do this or I can't do that. You know what? If you truly surrender yourself to the Lord and you give it all to Him, you have the power within you to no longer sin. The problem is, is that we still have cravings. The problem is, is that we still want to satisfy self, self. And we know that we all go through a sanctification process. We know that this is part of us because God knows who we are. But you have the power already in you. He doesn't say, you know what, I'm going to give you more power. You know what, the power I first gave you was just a little bit. I'm going to give you more. He doesn't say that. The power is in us. You have a complete package. You have it all. You have a life that is equipped to please the King of kings and the Lord of lords. What does he mean by glory and virtue? It means that you are now able to walk in this manner. You now have the power to walk in goodness and righteousness as a holy life. You were created for good works. And as we think about this, you are his masterpiece. That's what God calls you. His masterpiece created for good works. You have been created for glory and virtue. And we know that one day, one day that we will be just like him.
Let's read in verse 4 and finish here. It says, By which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. When Christians first surrender themselves to the Lord, when you first come to the faith in Jesus Christ, the Word of God plays a major part in it. Understand this. I know that many times well, we, 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 I've been talking about born of the Spirit, but understand that on the spiritual sense, we really have two parents like we have two physical parents. We have the Spirit and we have the Word. Okay, and I'm going to talk now about the Word. In the Scriptures, the Word of God is referred to as a seed. Okay, this is what, you know, if you look at the teachings of Christ, he talks about the word as a seed. And throughout the New Testament, the word of God is re referred to as a seed many times. In Luke 8, verses 5 through 11, and we're not going to have time to go there because we're running out of it. It talks about seeds. Seeds that go out and fall. Some by the wayside, some on the rocks, some on the thorns, and some on good ground. When Jesus was given this parable, he was referring to the Word of God. Many hear the Word of God, but we know that not all seeds of the Word fall on fertile ground. How many have seen Christians that say, you know what? Yes, I surrender myself to Jesus Christ, and a month, a week, a year later, they're back in the world. It happens. The seeds have not fallen on fertile ground. It says... There are those that when it falls, when they hear it, when they receive it, they allow the word of God to give them a new birth. And this is what 1 Peter 1.23 refers to, born again through the word of God. 1 Peter 1.23. See, I want to give you sort of an illustration of this. When I heard the word of God, you know what? The word of God was just... You know what? It was just doing a work in my heart. It was just, you know what? It was convicting me. It was doing all kinds of stuff. When I was sitting, when I first heard the word of God truly preach, I was like, man, I've never heard the word of God preach like this. And the word of God was just penetrating into my heart. It was ripping me up. And I was saying to myself, man, this word of God is just amazing. And because I heard the word of God, I said to myself, you know what? i got to surrender to it. The word of God that is being spoken is the truth of God. And I know it to be the truth because it was true to my soul. It was right in my spirit. And I knew that, you know what, that there were no other words that were doing this to me. And so what I decided to do is I yielded to the Word of God and I surrendered to it. But without hearing the Word of God, I would not have known the truth of God. And there was no way that I could be born of the Word. And this is what we're talking about here. It's important for us to understand that you and I are partakers of this divine nature. This is why he talks about by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. The promises from the word of God is what he is referring to. The promises that we have in his word. The fact that we hear about his grace, his mercy, his kindness, his forgiveness, his love, his promises. The hope that is in him. Everything that is in the word of God is right for our soul. And when we say yes 
We have a new divine nature. This is what he's talking about, being born again of the Spirit. We put to death the old nature, right? When we say yes to Christ, that we no longer want to fulfill the lust, the previous lust that we have and the cravings of the flesh. This is what happened to me. When I said yes to Christ, he was able to do this in and through me. I was able to surrender myself to the Lord and to live in the newness of life, to be this new creation that no longer had the penalty of sin, which is death, but now had the righteousness of Christ because in him we have eternal life. Understand that this new nature that is in us, this divine nature, it has power to produce life and godliness. As I mentioned to you earlier, the evidence of the new nature is good works. Understand that the evidence of the new nature is good works. We must be living out what God has asked us to do. Some of us find it hard and there is a transformation that takes place. But the power is in you to do it. Some of you it takes longer. But the power is in you to do it. Understand this. That godliness, virtue, glory and life. Is in us. To live out. It is important for us to show this new nature to the world. And to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Let us close. Lord Jesus, we just want to thank you, Lord. Lord, we thank you for the doctrine that you gave us, Lord. We thank you for the introduction that you gave us to this book. We thank you for the truth, because none of us want to live lies. Your truth today was given that we needed to be born again. We, needed this, we need this new divine nature to make peace with you, to receive the grace of God. The only way to do this is to surrender ourselves to you, to say yes to you, to have true repentance. We want the seed to fall on fertile ground. We don't want these seeds to fall by the wayside, on thorns or on rocks. If there is anyone here, as we have heard the word of God, as the seeds have that, as the seeds that have gone out, if any of you want to surrender your life to Jesus Christ, now is the time. If you want to do this, raise your hand and we will pray for you. Amen. 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 A anyone else? Before we close, anyone else? Amen. Anyone else? Lord, you saw these hands that went up. Lord, you spoke to them. They opened the door of their heart to let you in. For those that raised their hands, I want you to stand up. I want you to stand up, and I want you to repeat these words after me. Stand up. Don't be ashamed. Christ was not ashamed when he died on the cross for you. So don't be ashamed. For those that are standing, repeat these words after me. Lord Jesus. I surrender my heart to you. I come to you 
in faith. I ask you to forgive me of my sins. To wash me clean as your word promises. You died for my sins. And you rose from the dead. I'm sorry for sinning against you. Come to live and to dwell with me. In my heart. In my life. Empower me. Enable me. Gift me by your spirit. To live a life that is pleasing to you. I thank you for your word. I thank you for your love. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated.